Davinia, I, I think I've called you several things so far, but Davinia is the one I've got the hang of. Do you prefer Dav? Either is fine. I think as we haven't met before, I'll stick with Davinia, uh, <laughs> if that's all right. That's all right. You can call me Dav for me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Searching for Elephants, episode two of our three-part health, wealth, and happiness series, and comes off the back of the launch of our health, wealth, and happiness pandemic report. This episode focuses on the future of wealth in our country. We've got our six returning experts back and ready to go. You've just heard the voices of our wealth expert and founder of RainCheck, Davinia Tomlinson, who was talking to Tom Bagri, who chairs the conversation and is the CEO of LifeSearch. And if you want to know more about them, then go back and listen to the first episode, which focuses on current and future health. But for now, take it away, folks. So Davinia, Dav, 72% of us are concerned about our future finances. The uh, stats from Nina and CEBR tell us uh, what practical steps can uh, ordinary people take to become less concerned? Yeah, no, I think um, unsurprisingly, it's a high number. The first thing to remember is that even though it may not feel like it at the time, I think sometimes it can be quite comforting to recognise that this is something that's completely outside of our control. Um, And so recognising what is within our control is the first step. The second thing is to immediately do an assessment of where you are in terms of your income and outgoings. So if you think about yourself in the same way as you would think about running a business and thinking about your cash flow, going through your standing orders and your direct debits is the, you know, was the first place to start. And in terms of you know, what I've been telling my clients, it's really go through the fine to come, anything that's just flying out of your account each month without you having any control over it at all. Um, and freeing up that cash so that it can be redistributed elsewhere is a really good place to start. I think for those people that found that they might be falling delinquent with um, household bills, um, whether that be utilities or mortgages, things like that, I know that there were providers that were offering payment holidays. And of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that the interest payments will stop accruing during that period. It just gives you some breathing space. So I think that's another important thing to consider. I think for those people that fall into the 28% category, because of course there are considerations for them too. And we recognise that there are that, you know, there is that relationship between your financial well-being and other aspects of your wellness, so your mental health in general. So even if you are not somebody that has had your finances decimated by the pandemic, you will still suddenly be confronted with your financial fragility for the first time for lots of us. So I think reflecting on what you can do to feather your nest for future is really important. So I always stress the importance of having a rainy day fund. Thinking about what you can do to really shore up your reserves um, and bolster that rainy day fund is important. And if you're in a position to do so, increasing you know, pension contributions, anything of that nature that will mean in future you will not be thrust into a real sense of financial uh, struggle. Brilliant. Thank you. You, you mentioned uh, interest rates, uh, Davinia, and um, with with negative interest rates currently being discussed? This is a thing that fascinates me. Uh, What effect might that have on on our household savings ratio? And how might that change the way we we keep our money? Yeah, it's been, unfortunately for for homeowners, it's not, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that those those interest rates will will pass along to us so that the banks pay us for loaning us money. So that's unfortunate news. Um, But for savers, um, I think, you know, obviously there's been a real spike in interest in um, investing. So for people that have, you know, previously never considered investing in the stock market, for example, um, you know, lots of younger people are really um, considering ways that they can make their money work harder for them. Um, Obviously, they recognise um, the effects of, you know, just parking their money in a deposit account and not earning any interest on it at all. And I think that's probably spurred lots of them into action. 
um, you know, for, for the general public, when people think about investing, it can be described in quite sensationalist terms. You know, we think of Wolf of Wall Street or, you know, huge peaks and troughs in the stock market rather than thinking about the fact that obviously over a long term period, there is lots of data and research that points to the fact that stock market investing will outperform cash saving. And I think as long as, you know, there is greater financial education and awareness, we can expect to see some of those trends continue. But I think there really is a concern, um, particularly when we think about, you know, um, people's propensity to save versus spend. And right now, lots of people, not, not necessarily all, but there are lots of people sitting on a huge cash pile that they've amassed during lockdown. And so hopefully it will be a real boon for the economy as they go out and enjoy hospitality and leisure um, and start spending much more, recognising that they're not going to accrue any, any interest if it was in a savings account. Thank you. Surprisingly to me anyway, in October 2020, uh, average weekly earnings went up to levels not seen since April 2008. Uh, how, would, how would we explain this? I think many parts of the economy and also the personal finances of many households have actually held up much better uh, than one would have intuitively guessed at the beginning of the pandemic. So Davinia mentioned a moment ago that many people are actually sitting on larger than normal piles of savings. And that's absolutely the case. Some people that are in the most impacted um, industries, of course, uh, might have lost their jobs, might have seen their, their incomes suffer. But for a lot of people that haven't seen their income be impacted in any meaningful way, what they have seen is just a huge drop in their expenditure. Just in case you're wondering, that's CEBR's CEO, economist Nina Scarrow talking. I mean, there's only so many things you can order from Amazon. <laughs> you know, not going out, not commuting, uh, cooking at home. In inevitably, a lot of people have ended up uh, not traveling a lot of people have accumulated large savings. I, I think it's also to keep in mind, you know, statistics, people like to think of them as these sort of, you know, perfect, infallible things. But if you really take the time um, to sort of look at what is behind some of these things, you know, you keep in mind, for example, in London specifically, a lot of people have just left since the beginning of the, the pandemic. If they weren't working um, especially if they were in sectors like hospitality that were really impacted and sh completely shot, basically, for long stretches of time. Large chunks of the workforce have just left, and you're really going to struggle to see that picked up in the in the statistics. Maybe the longer term term ones, when you look at sort of you know big changes in in working age population and such. Uh, but sort of you know looking at the the you know regular um, regular measures like like weekly earnings. Uh, given that we have the government support in place, which is sometimes hard to kind of, you know, cut out of the statistics, sort of what what is actual economic robustness and what is sort of just the fiscal taps uh, being being open. Um, so, you know, I, I think with that in mind, it's not necessarily once you sort of dig underneath the surface, it's not surprising that that the earnings statistics have actually been quite robust. And I think we've actually seen that with a number of the wealth measures. I, I guess that might end uh, when furlough ends. We, again, what's intuitively right doesn't often seem to happen these days. More or less the opposite sometimes happens. So so one doesn't want to, to, to be too, too predictive. But uh, it seems to me that many people are facing potential unemployment uh, once, once furlough ends. And... Shifting from the economics of it to the personal of it, Luke, you deal with, with those having a tough time. Uh, this would be a classic increaser of personal stress. What would be your 
practical advice? I think if you leave any problem in life till till crisis point, then it's going to just make the problem more detrimental, isn't it? That's Lou Gambler, our happiness coach and founder of Andy's Man Club. So if someone is on furlough, it does end, I think it's September. Uh, so you've got if you've got a feeling that that could be coming to you now, um, start 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 looking now. Start upskilling now. You've got time on your hands because you, you shouldn't be working if you're furloughed. So you've got your normal working week to, to really upskill yourself and be putting yourself out there. And, and I don't just mean this in a in, in a furlough sense. I, I, I meant that in any sense. You know, don't wait until you till you're obese to get on a on a, a weight pro, weight loss program. Don't wait till you you know suicidal to to help better your mental health while you're at rock bottom. So. It's in everything, isn't it? I think as human beings, we like to just put stuff to the back of his head, hoping, you know, and I know a lot of people will be listening to this who are on furlough, thinking, like, just please, I hope it's me that gets to go. And it's like a lottery then. Um, and, you do, you know, with, with what could be the, the reward could also come the risk. So I'd be saying to people, be proactive now. You're getting paid now to be proactive, to better set you, you and your family or you and yourself up for this next stage of, of where we're at. So that would be my, my key key advice. I guess just following up on Luke's point, recognise that there is so there are so many free resources out there already. Um, I, I'm not normally a, a big advocate of social media um, unless it's for you know unless you can be very disciplined and focused with regard to what you're consuming. But I think you know social media actually can be quite a good haven if you're focused on you know being part of business communities, for example, where they're sharing free resources. There are a variety, a multitude of free masterclasses on structuring your business on small business finance um you know there are communities of entrepreneurs in different industries that can help you to you know take your idea from kind of a you know just the, the germ of an idea to something that could become bigger and i think you know also social media provides a platform through which you're able to test you know use it as a, a promotional platform test your idea see if anybody's willing to buy it and you can do so at very little risk um you know i know that lots of us can sometimes get inside our own heads and think you know, oh, everybody's going to be looking at me or it's going to be awful. But actually, exactly to Luke's point, now is a, the, the best possible time for you to try a few things out. So, you know, there's been this huge spike in side hustles, as people call them, um, where, you, you know, you can effectively take a hobby and monetize it. And I think, you know, thinking about it in, in that way can take some of the pressure off. If you're thinking about, you know, I'm just I'm just trying to monetize my hobby rather than thinking, right, I'm trying to build a business empire that's probably the best way to start. So the thing that I would always say to anybody is don't delay, just take one first step and then build from there. Baz, that's exactly what you did, actually. Yeah, it, yeah. I was listening to Davinia then and I was like, I get, I get exactly what she's saying, but I kind of had a different approach in that when the pandemic came on, I, I had this, I knew that I wanted to create something like with a huge, with, you know, with a legacy, like really improving female health. That's Baz Moffat, Life Search's health coach, women's health expert, and former Olympic rower. And so instead of giving myself an out, if you like, and saying, okay, like this is a bit of a side hustle, I'm going to see how it's going, I just thought, you know what? There is no better time than now to go for this. Like this, this, you know, coronavirus has come. I really, really want to give this a really good go. And so it really spurred me on to totally go for it. And I was a personal trainer. So actually, my business, it didn't didn't disappear overnight, but it had to shift online and it's just not what I wanted to be doing. And so this really motivated me to really get out there and go for it. And we just decided, I remember having a really good meeting with some of our investors and they were like, so is this going to be a charity? Is this going to be like something small? Is it going to be a hobby? And I said, we we are all eggs in, our, in this basket and I'm ready, like I did with my sport, I went for gold and I was happy kind of not to get it 
in that I put everything into it. And so this pandemic's really motivated me to kind of do that with my business. And I've never had that confidence before, apart from that sports world such a long time ago. Up until then, I've been like, bit of this, bit of that, bit of this. And, but now I've, I've got real clarity. I think if this pandemic's taught us anything, it's that, that life's short, and, mm. you know, and there's people losing lives daily. So why live a life that you're not truly content in? So there's a, there's a scene in a Batman movie where Batman's stuck in this prison in like a well, right? And, he, and he's trying to get out of this well. And he keeps running, he's got his rope attached to his back. So anytime he doesn't quite get himself out of it, this big tunnel he's got himself stuck in, he keeps jumping, he keeps missing ledge. And eventually this, this like weird old man pops out of this like cave and says, cut the rope. And the rope's the one thing that's stopping him from falling and, and dropping like a lot of people in the jobs, a lot of people on furlough. And he just keeps saying, cut the rope, cut the rope. He's like, this guy's mad. Why am I going to cut rope? I don't actually say that in movie with a Yorkshire accent. But he, uh, he just he keeps running and jumping, keeps running and jumping. Eventually, he gets it, cuts the rope. And that lo- little bit of weight that that rope had, although it was protecting him, it was stopping him from getting to where he wanted to be. Just like Baz there, just like any of us, just like yourself, um, Tom, when you first started Life Search, when we all had a dream at some point, we had to cut the rope of what we knew were normal, maybe away from what our parents believed upon us, those people around us. Eventually, at some point, you've got to stop listening to those people's voices around you, cut the rope, cut the safety net, and try and jump and, and get out of that well. And that's what a lot of us do in it. And then you see that once you get there, that the, the, the grass is green and it is nice. And don't get me wrong, the real challenges start once that rope's cut. But you give yourself a step closer to your dreams, don't you? And that's what, what life's all about. And I suppose, Davinia, just because, before I come to you, I could put a little plug in there. Just before you cut your rope, just uh, protect that income of yours. <laughs> Give Life Search a call, and uh, and just just make sure that if, if <laughs> you miss the ledge, you uh, hmm, someone sends you a check each month while you uh, while you try and work out how to get back up there. Um, Davinia, was that the point you were going to make? Or uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I completely see what Baz and Luke are saying. I completely agree. And in normal times, pre-pandemic times, that absolutely, I, I completely agree. You have to go for it. There has to come a point where you go for it. But I just wonder when you know, in in an environment or in, when we're in the midst of having you know all of our senses assaulted with all of these different things simultaneously for the first time ever. I mean, that word unprecedented has been used so many different times. But I think. When you're thinking about doing something that could jeopardise your own financial security and that of your loved ones, leaping off or having someone cut your rope, it just doesn't feel like that is the right thing to do. And so on that basis, I thought, you know, having that kind of hedging your bets a bit and maybe having someone hold the rope, to Tom's point about having somebody hold the rope, i.e. have some protection in place, that to me feels like a far more mentally safe and financially safe way to do it. But that could be because I'm small C conservative, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think every every clever entrepreneur would cover the downside, wouldn't they? Um, and maybe have a, a six-month parachute should that, should it go wrong. And I think that's what you've got to think about, like cover the downside should that risk go wrong. So that, that's – when I quit rugby and went all in, I had another bite of let property that if it all went wrong, that I would have sold that and it would give my family some security for a few months. Um, so when I talk about going all in, I don't just mean I went all in with last £1,000. Like some people tell that story. I think, you know, if you look at any successful businessman, they always cover – or business person, sorry – very poor I'm a business person they would cover the downside wouldn't they so um, I couldn't, couldn't agree more Tom you're the one among the, the group here that runs a company of several hundred people and the working from home transition you know affected you arguably more than it affected the rest of us that's Ali Miller author of Life Search's Health, Wealth and Happiness Report who heads up the creative agency Fall of Man I mean how did the transition go for you in Life Search? Uh, we were very well, I, I'd say we were lucky, Ali, but it wasn't actually luck because in 2008, we committed ourselves to a 
a business ethos which put our, our customers first and our people second and our profits third, which sounds easy, but the manifestation uh, was that we started to enable flexible working from 2008. And by 2019, everybody at LifeSearch had a laptop and everyone was able to do their job wherever they wanted to do their job. Well, whenever whenever they wanted to do their job as well, within within reason, obviously. So we didn't, we transitioned for an hour. It really was just don't come in, stay home, go fetch your laptop if you left it in the office over the weekend. So we were very lucky, but the luck didn't come from nowhere. The luck came from trying to run a business the way we've, we've run LifeSearch for a very long time. I, I want to take you now into a... a a more scary place. The report mentions the uh, the te- technological encroachment uh, and its uh, its acceleration during the pandemic. Do you think that the uh, the machines takeover threatens jobs? Really? Do you see them as just replacing the, the jobs that we don't want to do, uh, or uh, do you feel that AI is actually going to give us uh, a whole new level of unemployment that we haven't? Uh, haven't had to deal with before. People were asked to kind of, I suppose, rank their fears, you know, one to 10, what are you most scared of? And unlike in previous years, we've seen, you know, a decent level of fear around AI encroachment or technological encroachment on jobs. This time around, we didn't see that. And, you know, there's potentially an interesting question there. Uh, Why are people less afraid of technological encroachment? I think the obvious answer is because we had other stuff to think about. We had other stuff to consider. I don't think that fear is going to be any less um, pertinent as we sort of emerge through the other side of this. And I think what has been very obvious is during the initial stages of COVID, just when we were kind of venturing from spring into summer, uh, people stopped talking about COVID as being a... a game changer and started talking about it being an accelerant, an accelerant of things that were going to happen anyway. Uh, technological encroachment, um, the moving of, of grocery shopping to online, the, you know, the, 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 the heightened use of Zoom calls. You know, Netflix's stock price went from you know, $300 to $600, kind of almost overnight. I don't think these things were game changers. COVID was an accelerant and things that were probably coming sooner or later anyway. And I think technological encroachment is just, you know, another, you know, another stanza in the in the great tune of of of, of life and of progress. I agree on some points. I would sort of I, I do think it's time for some of the rhetoric to move away from the fact where technology is a game changer for lower skilled jobs. I actually think, you know, just looking for a lot of um, professionals, a lot of office based workers in terms of the, you know, how technology has impacted their way of working. And there is a positive way to look at it, which is, you know, this is great. I no longer need to be based near my office. If I'm working from home, I have a lot of more freedom. Um, And then I guess maybe a continuation of that is, well, if it turns out that this job actually isn't location dependent, can we maybe hire somebody who's much further away from the office, who is just as skilled um, and, you know, probably living in a country, in a part of the world where costs of living are much lower and therefore their salary expectations for this job are much lower. So I do think that, uh, you know, it's it's already been an incredibly complex discussion over, you know, the last couple of decades, really, sort of this wave of what kind of jobs are being impacted by technology. And I, I think, if anything, over the last year, I think it, it's a question that has popped up in a lot of people's minds, you know, of terms of thinking, well, like, hold on, uh, am I now more easily, easily replaceable? Maybe not necessarily by a robot, 
but by another human, uh, thanks to technology, because suddenly so many more jobs have become location agnostic. And I also think that the, the technology has improved our productivity uh, incredibly. Uh, the the uh, the number of things you can do in fast order because you're not getting to meetings and and doing all the nice stuff we used to do uh, it means that perhaps fewer people are needed to do the same job but uh in my long experience and I've been saying this to life searchers for for literally over a decade uh, the machines only take your job if you let them you need to shape your job around the machines you need to find the work the machines are uh, are doing we've just launched our new online trading platform which in theory competes directly with all our advisors on the telephone. But we know that a, a, a huge number of people who try to buy what we advise on, life insurance and disability insurance online, actually just have too many questions uh, and they need help. So if, if we own the machines that are solving the problem online, we are creating all the work for our people offline. That's, uh, that, that's our underlying logic. Baz, you, you had your hand up a moment ago. Yeah, and I think it was just to say that um, you know, Ali mentioned there that people said that the fear of machines taking over their jobs wasn't as big a thing now. And I and I just looked at it differently and thought, well, actually, maybe that's because we've all become a lot more human and we've seen the value in human. Like Davinia said in that first podcast that suddenly she got to know her neighbours and there was a real value to that. Like, you know, we went round our estate and gave letters to everybody saying, if you need help. And then suddenly you saw the value of carers. You, you saw the value of this totally you know this unpaid profession many times and, and if they are paid being paid really poorly and and you just got a sense of well communication is key and we can only get so efficient you know to the point where people are sending you know I'm now making an effort in my emails to actually write nice things in the emails not just like you know the practical stuff and I think this pandemic has really kind of put value on that in the moment we can become more efficient but actually we're not cross-pollinating we're not networking we're not getting the magic happening and I think that's where maybe maybe that's an interpretation of those results as well I think that's wonderful um Davinia, yes thank you Tom so the one thing that I wanted to highlight was that um obviously the disparity between um the impact on the pandemic on women's finances um and we talked previously about um the disproportionate effect of the pandemic um, in terms of economic outcomes for women as a result of, I mean, even prior to the pandemic, the UN has done a huge body of research that shows the trillions of dollars of GDP contribution, unpaid social care um, conducted by women. And I think the pandemic has effectively exacerbated that. It's worsened economic outcomes for women. Um, And we can see that on a local level, perhaps among our friendship groups or even within our own homes, where women either um, consciously or subconsciously are absorbing the lion's share of of domestic work and unpaid uh, social care responsibilities. Um, We've also seen Specifically within the US, there's been a research um, report that points to, you know, the the huge number of women that have left the workforce, particularly in the last quarter of 2020, um, as a result of competing pressures within the home and within the workplace. Um, And of course, the long term consequences of of that on women's finances are as yet unclear. But if you consider that, you know, there is already a pension gap that exists within the UK and globally, when you think about, you know, the proportion of women that will retire in the UK with a a very small pension pot compared to the average UK man. um, And the pandemic has, has, has effectively exacerbated that. So I definitely think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens and, and what initiatives, programmes and measures can be taken to support women in closing some of these gaps that have now widened as a result of the last 12 months. 
I think that's a very, very valid point indeed and something that uh, society will, will, yes, have to strive to fix. Luke, you had a thought. Yeah, I just I was just thinking about, about the topic of this podcast, wealth, and I know we spoke about uh, income protection and, and, and entrepreneurship and technological advances, and in other words, I didn't quite understand. Uh, but Baz got me thinking about, about true wealth, and, and we've spoke about investments and returns, but people have, have really invested in communities and in, in themselves, uh, and it's built up good returns on their character, bank on it. And you know, when I'm talking about that, I'm on about better values. People are going a lot better values, or a, a lot better ethics about them now, and that's true wealth in it. You know, you know what you what you've got in your heart as much as what you got in your bank. It's important, and I'm not just rounding off of a corny cliche thing. It was just what Baz said there, and it made me think about my own little neighbourhood and and just you know, and tragically, you know, I don't know when this podcast will go out, but like like the young man last night uh, or the night before in London who dived into River Thames to save to save that woman and tragically died. You know, what a hero, what what true wealth that is to to, you know, put yourself at risk to, to help another human being. And um ultimately, no matter what business you're in, you're ultimately trying to serve serve another human being and make their life better, aren't you? That's true wealth, isn't it? When you know at the end of the day, it's not about what profit you've made. You know, you said it a minute ago, customer people profit. Um, your, your ultimate profit is, is how many people's lives you can influence for better, isn't it? That's true wealth in my book. So whether you're making an income and you're making a good profit or you're helping more people, um, wealth can be defined in a multitude of ways, can't it? I really think you're right. I think that's a wonderful place to, to end up because wealth is not just about money. It, it, it's about so much more than that. And your v- vision of, of wealth in the community, wealth in service, these things are every bit a, as true a value of wealth as, as pounds in a bank. You're absolutely right. Well, thank you, everyone. I found that uh, I didn't expect the wealth section of this to move me, but it did. <laughs> Download the report and learn more about it at lifesearch.com forward slash HWH. Or for more information on the health, wealth and happiness facts and figures, follow LifeSearch in all of those usual social places. And the final part of our conversation, happiness, now and tomorrow, is ready and waiting for you. So why don't you just go on ahead, click play and keep listening, baby. Searching for Elephants is composed and mixed by Patrick Bagri. And the show was created and edited by me, Angus Bagri.